The views and opinions expressed by the individuals in the following program do not necessarily reflect those of its producers, Metaphor Creative Media, its management, or affiliates. Police officers were witness to some of the most amazing things in life. Some comical, some horrendous, and some just plain miraculous. When asked why you went into law enforcement, most officers will tell you because it's like having a front row seat to the greatest show on earth. Today, we saved you a front row seat. This is Observations. From Broadcast Beat Studios in Oakland Park, Florida, Metaphor Creative Media presents a show that gives you a personal glimpse of what law enforcement officers see and do in their typical and not-so-typical day of work. From walking the beat to detective, Rob has 35 years of law enforcement experience. Although the staff are all active or former law enforcement, any views, opinions, and all other show content are in no way official views, statements, or policies of any law enforcement agency. To talk to our host, call the podcast studio toll-free at 888-511-COPS. That's 888-511-2677. Hello again, and welcome to Observations, your front row seat to the greatest show on earth. I'm your host, Rob Lerner. Tonight joining me is our co-host, Gary Dickinson. Gary, how are you? Good, buddy. How was your How was your week? Oh, it was hectic. You think so? Oh, my God. Hurricane Dorian had everybody a little bit on edge. It did me. Yeah, it was very stressful. We and thank God I didn't have any horses to deal with this time. Absolutely. We definitely dodged a bullet. We broadcast live every Thursday night at 7 p.m. from the Broadcast Beat Studios located in Oakland Park, Florida, on the Observations Facebook page and the Observations podcast channel on the Metaphor Creative Media YouTube page. If you have any questions, comments, or a story you'd like to share, you can join in on the conversation by giving the podcast studio a call at 888-511-COPS. That's 888-511-2677. You can also instant message your questions and comments live on our Facebook page. Here on Observations, we attempt to give you a personal glimpse of what law enforcement officers go through on a daily basis. We also talk about recent events, happenings, and the latest hot topics pertaining to law enforcement that not only affect officers, but you, the general public, as well. Last week, we discussed the dangers of traffic stops and pursuits with our guest, Dane Swade. Normally here on Observations, we have a guest appear and discuss various topics that range the gamut of police work. This week, however, has been anything but normal. This week found South Florida preparing for the mother of all hurricanes, Hurricane Dorian. Dorian was predicted to hit South Florida as a strong Category 4 and possibly Category 5 hurricane. Category 4 hurricanes have sustained winds between 130 and 157 miles per hour. A Category 5 can clock in at 155 miles, I'm sorry, 157 miles hour or higher. At one point, the sustained winds from Dorian actually reached 185 miles per hour when it made landfall, a landfall in Elbow Cay in the Bahamas. For what seemed like an eternity, South Florida in particular, West Palm Beach, where I come from, looked like it was going to take a direct hit and before it did, Dorian appeared to be gaining strength. 
Tonight we'll discuss the preparations that first responders take and the sacrifices they make when a catastrophic incident is approaching. But before we do, like always, I'd like to discuss some recent happenings in the news that pertain to law enforcement. In particular, there was a shooting in New York City where a masked gunman was killed in a shootout with NYPD police officers. The masked gunman was killed in a shootout with police who confronted him on a Brooklyn street and pursued him into a backyard early Monday. The shootout unleashed dozens of rounds in a yard in the Brownsville neighborhood. Police Chief Department Terrence Monaghan said no officers were injured. The police department hasn't released the identity of the body. The encounter began when three uniformed officers on patrol in an unmarked car spotted a man wearing a mask. They made contact with him and he immediately took off in a foot pursuit rant, uh, ensued. As one officer got out of the car and the others drove around the corner, the man pulled the gun and fired on the car, leaving a bullet hole in the passenger side front door. They uh, encountered him about a half hour later in the backyard, and I believe there were uh, 60 rounds that were fired, Gary, from the handgun when the uh, shootout ensued. It was a, a massive shootout that they encountered. 65 rounds were, were fired in all, I think. But they, they don't know how many of the bad guy fired? No, he, he fired quite a few shots at them. You know, and the, the sad thing about that was after the shootout happened, the New York Post ran a story where one of the police officers was viewing a video of the encounter. And upon viewing it, he was overheard to say, well, at least that's uh, one less a-hole that we have to worry about suing the police department. And uh, I guess the complaint was made, and then they're actually looking into it, which I think is uh, kind of bizarre. bizarre. Wasn't he a uh, Blood's gang member, though? Yeah, later on they found out he, he was a Blood. Well, then he was an a-hole, wasn't he? Uh, I, I would say so. I would definitely say so. But and, and if that was me that said it and they asked me, I'd say, yeah, I said it. Yeah, there's nothing wrong with, you know. Wait, I didn't find it. the guy's feelings? Comment. No, he's dead. <laughs> he's dead. Uh, and he did everything he could do to kill our officers, too, so. Uh, absolutely. It was kind of crazy. Then there was a shooting in uh, Texas, the mass shooting in Texas recently. And uh, that was after a traffic stop. It was after a traffic stop, the uh, subject was stopped, I believe, for a traffic infraction, and uh, I think shots were fired at the police at that time. Um, but prior to that, he had called the FBI and the police and was ranting to them on the telephone. And uh, this gentleman had, had been fired uh, from the company, then he called 911, and uh, I guess it was on Saturday afternoon, state troopers were pu pulling over the car for failing to signal. And at that point, he pointed the rifle towards the rear window and fired shots at the police. Now, the cops had no reason. I mean, they had no knowledge. It was just a normal traffic stop. Correct. It was a traffic stop uh, for an infraction, and the shots, and it goes back to what we discussed uh, last week with Dean. You know, you never know what you're doing. This was a traffic infraction, and the next thing you know, you have shots being fired at you. Well, thank God he fired the shots before the cop got out of the car. At least he did that much. He was stupid enough to do that, because if he would have got out of the car, he would have got killed. Exactly. You know, one of the troopers was struck. And then the gunman fled. Um, and what he did is, as he was driving, he fired at random. Um, and then he drove some 300 miles. And uh, I guess at some point the police used a SUV to ram the vehicle. And this was by the movie theater. And then he fled. And uh, I think he wounded two officers before he, before he was killed in the shootout. But when he was firing random, I think he killed a, or a, at least 
injured a bunch of other citizens too. Yes, he did. He was shooting at people driving by. Yes, he, he, and he, he killed a few. Um, and the last stop, he was going to the movie theater where it could have been, you know, who, who knows how many people could have been killed at that point. But you, you know, when when you get calls like this, um, it's just a it's an ongoing event. It's not like you're going to one scene, one place. You got a guy in a building. Or, or something like that where you know you're going to be this one just has to you just have to take it as it unfolds you know and the cops have to use their common sense and they have to let it play out and take take them down when they get the chance you know uh, this guy was in control of the pursuit somewhat so depending on how many cars he hit what he did so the police officers would uh, did a heck of a job on this if you ask me no absolutely and the problem was like like you said it was on the move it wasn't a static scene it was constantly moving and changing and, you know, it's the same thing. It's just another mass shooting that's in the news. It seems these are happening more and more, o almost on a daily basis, it seems. Well, it's all, a lot of it's due to mental illness, and obviously this guy wasn't wrapped too tight. No, def definitely not. It was uh, another sad day. You know, we're talking about sad days. We just had another NYPD officer commit suicide recently. This is the 10th. Um, it was a retired sergeant. He just, just retired just retired and uh, committed suicide. No, nobody knows knows why. He joined the police department in 1992, and he was assigned to uh, Trans District 30. Um, this is, like I said, this is the 10th suicide. And we've discussed that before with, with Dean, with Papa, and, uh, you know, it just seems to be a crisis that's going on. And I wonder, uh, does it seem like it's just New York City for the most part? It's... Nothing. No, it's not. It, it's nationwide. The nationwide, you know, suicides are up. Um, there have been more suicides in line of duty deaths so far this year, but it just seems there's an epidemic going on in New York City for some reason. Like I said, this is number ten. This is number ten, and uh, you know, th there's help out there. You know, there's Papa, and their toll-free number is eight 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 two six seven seven two six seven, and the suicide prevention hotline at eight hundred two seven three. 8255. So th there's, there's help out there. You know, the guys just have to reach out to. Well, you know, cops are kind of, they want to take care of everything themselves and kind of a macho type of thing and they don't want to call for help. But if you're ever going to call for help, this is the time. Absolutely. Reach out, make a phone call. You know, we have to be cognizant of, of our brothers and sisters. Especially when, you know, talking to other cops at least. Call your friend, call your buddy, call somebody you work with. You know, we nobody understands like we do. No. And how many citizens have we talked out of doing this? Yeah. I remember doing that one time. I was assigned to the uh, switchboard in the precinct, and I was on the phone for about an hour. I had received a phone call. woman called up asking for the suicide prevention hotline. She said, you know, this is going to sound like a, a bad joke. You know, when she called, it was busy, and she called me back. She said, it's like a bad joke. Here, I'm looking for help, and I can't get through. And I spent uh, probably about an hour and a half to two hours on the phone talking to her. And we talked about everything, and everything worked out fine. She called me back a short time later thanking me, you know, thanking me. She said, thank you. you, you really got me out of a spot. So you never know. No. You really don't. Right. Well, you did a good job there, Rob. I, I tried. I tried. We're changing gears a little bit tonight and discussing the preparations and sacrifices that first responders make when faced with a potentially catastrophic event. When we say first responders, we mean all first responders, police, fire, paramedics, EMT services. Gary, uh, another thing that was in the news this week was uh, 
Hurricane Dorian. And to say it's been a nail-biter would be an understatement. That's true. You know, it looked like we were going to take a, a direct hit. And, you know, you change from uh, update to update. They didn't know really what was going on. But it looked at one point that West Palm Beach was going to get decimated. You know, we, we saw what happened to the Bahamas. And uh, it just sat there and sat there. And, it, you know, at one point it wasn't even moving. It just totally wiped out. Uh, portions of the Bahamas. So, some portions were spared somewhat, but a lot of it was just decimated. Yeah, and I uh, I feel really, really bad for those people. You know, I, I also believe the, the, the hurricane guys that put up the forecasts and the models, I, th I really think that they're pretty sharp and they know where it's going. But in this case, because it was such a bad hurricane and it was just sitting right off of my house, I was really worried that if they got it wrong, what happened in the Bahamas would have been at my house. Or if they got it right. What do you mean yeah, if they got or, it right? For 180 mile an hour winds, uh, it would have been devastating for uh, for all of us. And, you know, for me, well, I'm retired now, so, uh, but, you know, back in the day, we'd have to go to work. And so I would have to get my house all prepared, all my shutters up, my, make sure my wife's got all her supplies. I make sure I got all my uniforms and my go bag and my stuff and my supplies. Then I had to take care of two or three horses right. that I had. And I, I remember one time a lieutenant called me up. He said, listen, it's time to come to work. I said, look, I'm not done with my horses. I said, what am I supposed to do? Tell my daughters your horse is going to die because I got to go to work? May I ask you, do you know what the word hurricane means? No. Okay, I'm going to educate you. Well, I, I happen to do a little research on it. And it says the word probably comes to us by way of the Spanish explorers. They picked up the term from the Taino Indian word hurricane, which meant evil spirit. Oh, it was evil, all right. <laughs> it could be very evil. And that word probably came to them from the Maya word hurricane, which meant god of storms or bad, bad weather. I can understand and that. that. I guess hurricanes is an appropriate term for it. You know, my first experience with a hurricane was... Uh, back in 1989 in New York, it was Hurricane Hugo. And up until that point in my entire life, you know, the only times we heard about hurricanes were when they came down here in South Florida. Um, and I remember they told us, get prepared and put masking tape in the shape of an X on your window. And, and that was it, you know, and every window I had had masking tape on it. And I remember I was working at the time and I told my wife, I said, listen, whatever, because I was off. I said, whatever you do, don't answer the phone. <laughs> <laughs> so they can't call so me to they work. Can't, yeah, they can't call me and um, do not answer the phone. And I stayed home, and it was nothing. But I remember watching um, the news, and they they were showing the beach and the surf, and you had people that were in the water, and the waves were crazy, and a lot of people took advantage of it to go surfing, you know, which they do here too. Yeah, you surfers know, this, are crazy people, so. They get out there. And then um, on the west, very west end of my precinct was a private beachfront community. I remember one of the news reporters was doing a story. And in the background, you could see a beach house that was on stilts. And the, the sea was angry. You could see the waves. It was still really going. And in the middle of the story, as she was talking, all of a sudden, the house came off the stilts and, and was gone. It went right into, the, right into the water. And I was like, oh, my, you know, oh my God. It was, it was insane. She didn't go with it, did she? No, she didn't. <laughs> but it was, <laughs> you know, and, and then that's the first time that you know, we really saw damage from a hurricane, what it could possibly do. And then the next biggest hurricane was back in uh, 1992, Hurricane Andrew. And that hit uh, Homestead and decimated it. 
Yeah. Did you have to respond there when? Uh, uh, they sent uh, BSO to Broward Sheriff's Office. They sent about, I don't know, half the department down to Day County, and I got to stay up here uh, and supervise a uh, team up here. But, um, you know, I went, to, I went down there uh, afterwards, and, boy, it was just devastation. And, um, of course, they finally determined that Hurricane Andrew was a Category 5 and not a 4. Right. So, I mean, that's what we would have been looking at if Dorian would have made a left turn. I had spoken to some of the guys that got mobilized for that, and I remember them telling me what they would do is they paired them up with officers from down there from Miami-Dade or people from Homestead that knew the area. And the guys that worked there, I mean, the devastation was unbelievable. S street signs were down. If you didn't know your way around there, you had no way of knowing where you were. And that lasted, uh, God, I don't know how long guys were down there that were sent down there mobilized. They were down there for quite a while, I think a couple of weeks that they were actually down there. That's terrible. And, uh, I don't know how long it took them to actually recover from it. I uh, I don't really remember, uh, but uh, um, we that was a that was a devastating time for everybody because at first they thought Andrew was going to come to Broward, and I remember working through that storm, and of course it was nothing really for us, but we thought it was a big deal. But uh, and then of course um, you know they sent out a book about Andrew even. That's how, how serious that hurricane was. Yeah, at, at that time, that was, I think, one of the strongest ones to hit South Florida, you know, in, in recent times. You know, we moved down to South Florida in 2001, and from 2001 to 2004, it was pretty much uneventful uh, as far as hurricanes. I mean, there may have been some tropical storm watches, but I don't remember getting hit with any. But in 2004, we got hit with Hurricane Charlie. In 2004... We had four major hurricanes that year, but Charlie was the first one that I remember I experienced. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I remember I had, I had to come into work. I had to prepare my house. We had to prepare the house, put the shutters up, get everything in order for the house. And then I had to come into work. And I remember my daughter at the time was 11 years old, and she couldn't understand why, Daddy, you know, why, why are you leaving us? You know, who, who's going to protect us? Yeah. And, you know, how do you explain to an 11-year-old, you, you know, because 11-year-old looks at you, and, you, and you, even the older kids, you, you're the dad, you're the protector, okay? Yeah, now, yeah, of course. And now you're leaving to go protect everybody else, and... Uh, you have to leave your family to go protect somebody else's. Yeah, and, and it was hard. I remember explaining to my daughter, I said, listen, honey, this is what police officers have to do, and firemen, and, you know, first responders, we have to go. And, but there would be people here, just in case you need them, to take care of you. But it was hard. She had a very difficult time understanding. Yeah, know. I guess so at 11. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. You know, but that's what we do. We uh, leave our families during times, times of crisis to protect other families. And we rely on other re first responders to protect ours when, when we're not there. Yeah, that's true. You know, in uh, 2004, we had Charlie, um, Jean, Francis, and Ivan. Yeah, that was a <clears throat> that was a really stressful time for me because, like I said earlier, I'd have to be away from my family. I'd have to I'd have to I had a wooden barn, so I had to take my horses other places. They had concrete barns, and of course that would cost me a fortune just to put the horses there. And we had to go back and get them afterwards. And what what are we going to do if we can't go get them because the we're flooded or this is out or it just you had to. 
you know, you just didn't take them over there. You had to have all their feed and their hay, and you had to bring everything. So, uh, and then, of course, we went to work, and four hurricanes in a row, that was that was really stressful on uh, everybody, but especially, I think, the first responders, because after a while, we just got worn out. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and, and Charlie was the uh, strongest hurricane to hit South Florida since Andrew in 1992. Yeah. So it was uh, something. So that was 2004, and then 2005, remember, we had uh, Dennis and, and Wilma. And I remember when Wilma came in, um, it was originally, we, we were hearing, oh, it's going to come in as a Category 1 or a Category 2. And I remember my wife telling me, listen, I don't want to put the, the shutters up. She hated being closed in, you know, because the house is pitch black, and you really don't know what's going yeah. on outside. And we went back and forth, and I said, no, um putting up the shutters I'm gonna put them up and she didn't want it and my neighbor wasn't doing it so she said listen Joe's not doing it and I really don't want to and it's only gonna be a one or a two not that bad and that's another argument I lost so I said okay so we didn't put the shutters up oh no yeah <laughs> and you know I, I remember you know I, I compare a hurricane to uh, a football game it's like two halves you, you get the front of the hurricane then the back and when the hurricane first came it, it wasn't too bad you know wasn't wasn't bad at all. And when we had that break break in the storm, I remember we went outside and we surveyed the damage. And I didn't have any at that point. One of my neighbors across the street had a screen room that had a support bar that was hanging down. And that was pretty much it. And it was beautiful out. It, it, it was nice. It was sunny. It was really calm. And then we but went. But that in. was a Category Three. Well, yeah. <clears throat> and uh, then we went in, and then the storm started up. We got the back half, the back end of the storm. And I remember sitting in the living room watching my sliders start to bow into the house. You can actually see the frame starting to come in. And we ended up in the closet. My wife, my kids, and my dogs, we ended up in the closet. I remember looking at her and saying, oh, yeah, I don't want to put this. Yeah, it's, it's only going to be a Category 1, Category let's 2. Don't put, I, let's don't put them up. What do yeah, you say? Huh? I said, I, I am never, <coughs> never going to uh, <laughs> listen to you to ever you. again. Ever. Hey, uh, You know, uh, I remember... Um, you talk about being away. I, w I was actually at the airport at the time when Wilma came through, I believe. And <clears throat> and my wife called me in the middle of the storm and said, scre screaming and yelling, the the uh, back the French doors in the back are bowing out. And I had shutters on them, but the wind was pulling them out, and she was afraid it was going to uh, break through and go. And, and my daughter and her were holding on to them as best they could. You know, and I, I didn't know what to do, and I'm... I'm trying to think, and I'm thinking, well, call Mike. He's my best friend. He lived about a mile from me. I said, call Mike and ask him what to do. So she called him up. He said, get an electric cord, tie it around the handles, and then go in the kitchen and tie it around the post in the kitchen and tie it real tight. And that's what they did, and that's how they kept the doors from, <laughs> from blowing out. It's crazy. But then there I was not there to protect them, you know. Hey, yeah. Uh, I want to say hello to Joe Brownlee, who's uh, some comments here. He's paid you with very nice compliment by I the way joe. you love joe yeah he said uh you're a really old guy <laughs> <laughs> gee thanks joe and a lot of skip moats and uh, john corman you know uh it's funny people don't realize you know as soon as there's a threat of a hurricane people panic they go into panic mode instead of preparing a little bit at a time you, you know when hurricane season starts and when it ends so the smart people prepare a little bit of time they stock up on supplies water batteries whatever they're going to need or what they think they need and then you have the people that don't prepare at all and then it's it's a madhouse it's a rush and you go to the stores and the shelves are empty and you can't find you can't find anything um and i remember i think it was during wilma one thing you know everybody wanted who's got beer 
That's all you wanted, beer. Beer and gas. You know, somebody go find where we can get beer and where we can get gas. Yeah, just what I need to do when all the windows are blowing out, be drunk and not. <laughs> yeah. And then uh, from 2005 to 2017, we had a 12-year uh, a break. It, it was nice. It was nice and quiet, 12-year sure break. And then we got hit, hit with Hurricane Irma. Oh, boy which was the uh, strongest observed hurricane in the Atlantic in terms of maximum sustained winds since Wilma. It peaked at a Category 5, 180 miles per hour before it hit Florida as a Category 3. Yeah, it was, uh, it was a monster. I, I got to tell you, you know, I was, I was retired by then, and, uh, you know, the reports were that it was going to hit us dead on as a Category 5. So... <clears throat> Because it was a Category 5, even I was scared. And I'm not scared of nothing, usually. You're My Superman. wife was scared. We were scared, yeah, you know. And uh, But uh tell you the truth, we packed up um, all our stuff, our kids, our kids' kids, two pets, no, three pets, I think, uh, two, gallon, two five-gallon cans of gas in case I ran out, and we fled. We fixed up the house, and we took off, and we went to Tallahassee. Well, of course, then Irma came to Tallahassee. And we thank you for that. And I'm thinking, what the... <laughs> yeah. So I couldn't stay in my friend's house because he had big oak trees around it. So we had to go to Destin and get a hotel room on the beach. That made it a little bit nicer, but, you know. Absolutely. Richie B. says hello. Hey, Richie. Yeah. You know, I remember with uh, with uh, Irma, I had to prepare the house. And I, I was gone for three days. I was gone for three days, and uh, as a lot of guys were, you're just away from your family, and you did what you had to do. You would go out when you could patrol and do damage assessment, and, uh, you know, even we had safe shelter, but we also dealt with power outages. And then you run out of your own supplies. Yeah. I mean, you know, people think the cops got an unlimited supply of everything, but that's not true. You know, and people, it's rough being away from your family. You know, you, you want to help everybody else, but your main concern always is You're your always own family. About them. You, your own family. It's, it's hard to be away from them. You know, and thank God, you know, everybody survived. And uh, then 2018, we got hit with uh, Hurricane Michael, which was a strong Category 5. It hit us at uh, 160 miles an hour, but it didn't hit South Florida. It hit the Panhandle and did a lot of destruction. You know, and... We watch these forecasts when these meteorologists tell, telling you, oh, it looks like the hurricane's headed this way, and there's a little wobble, it could go this way, and, and you watch and you hope and you pray. Um, you know, with Dorian, when Dorian hit the Bahamas and we thought it was going to come headed to, towards us, we were all praying for that, that turn, a, a northern turn or a more easterly turn. And we knew it was scheduled to go after it hit us, it was going to hit the Carolinas. And I'm saying to myself, the people in the Carolinas, you know, we when the Bahamas got hit, we were happy that it wasn't us. It was like, and you felt bad for the Bahamas. And you feel the people in the Carolinas were probably looking as us being the next target, saying, oh, my God, you know, thank God we don't Better live. Better them than me. Yeah, thank God we don't live in Florida. Yeah, right. right? You know, it was like, thank God we weren't in the Bahamas. Thank God we don't live in Florida. And then we got spared, and now they're getting hit pretty bad in the Carolinas. And we're looking at it like, uh, you know, these poor people, you know, and you don't know who's next who's the next victim well, you know you kind of always do you don't want anybody to get hit but I, I the people that got the worst deal on this you know was the bahamas i mean i there's just uh i from what i understand thousands and thousands of people missing uh i think they're going to find a bunch dead um last can i heard it was up to 20 
It was up to 20, and you had a woman in the Bahamas. I don't know if you saw the story. She rescued almost 100 dogs and brought them into her house. And she had 79 of them that she kept in her bedroom. Um, yeah, it's an amazing story. And people actually donated. I think last, last I had heard, I don't know how much it is now, about $65,000 for her to take care of these animals. And I guess... Oh, well, you know, you can say anything you want on the radio or on TV, but if you say anything bad about an animal, you're dead meat. Oh, absolutely. So and you know these people are going to be sending money. And, very sympathetic And you know animals them. are innocent. They can't. No, they can't fend for themselves. And, you know, unfortunately, there were so many animals that were found dead, you know, that had drowned. But, uh, you know, Dorian came in. It was predicted to be the mother of all hurricanes and had sustained winds of uh, 185 miles an hour um, Sunday afternoon and evening. And at one point, I think it had gusts hitting even 200 miles an hour. So I, I couldn't imagine having to deal with something did, like did that. You, did you happen to hear on the news when the woman, I, I assume a cell phone, called uh, and they broadcasted over the air that we're in an apartment building, please pray for us, she was crying, pray, pray for my family, my babies. And it was so heart-wrenching to listen to this. And they were showing video out the window where she was at, I assume with a cell phone or something. But it, I, the, things were underwater. It was bad, bad. And she was in trouble, and I thought to myself, God, I wish I was like Superman. I could fly in there and drag her and her family out of there. But it turns out, I found out today, just before I came here, that what happened was because they, the roof came off, they went and all eight people got in a car with an eight-month-old baby and an 85-year-old man with them. And uh, they all survived, and they made it, and, and they're alive today. Oh, thank God. Thank God. You saw some of the footage where the water was hitting the second floors of these houses you could see it over the front door and it was coming up to the second level it was kind of kind of scary well you know the problem is though that they they don't they're not going to have any potable drinking water there no I mean, none no there's going to be all, all kinds of disease um yeah it, it's going to be be a mess for a while it's definitely going to be a mess for a while you know this uh, hurricane uh is on the charts as one of the most powerful tropical storms ever observed in the atlantic ocean it, you know this is how powerful this thing was you know so you can't mess with mother, mother nature well, you know, people all along the Carolinas and even Florida, we're all pretty much used to going through these hurricanes. But, buddy, when they get over a Cat 3 and become a Cat 4 and 5, it's really scary for everybody. Yeah, absolutely. And like I said, it, you know, for a while it looked like we were definitely going to uh, take a direct hit. And depending on what channel you listen to, we had the Weather Channel on for quite a while. And it was all doom and gloom. If you listened to them, it was we were going to get uh, decimated. You know, and that's why I like the local news channels because I, I felt it was more informative. It was more real. Okay. Um, yeah, you kind of know you're going to die, but it's not going to be such a horrible death. So. Not, <laughs> <no>. <laughs> but, uh, you know, this one meteorologist was great. He said, listen, this is what we have to tell you because this is what they're telling us, I guess, from the Hurricane Center. Yeah. But he kind of laid it on the line, and you felt a little better listening to him. Well, I remember the local guy saying, it's definitely going to make this turn. It's definitely going to make the turn. Don't worry about it. It's going to make this turn. And usually they don't do that. They Usually they don't say that when it's that close. Because uh, the hurricane center got in trouble one time when they said it was going to hit the, uh, like Naples or something. And it veered off just a couple of degrees and ended up hitting Fort Myers. And that's, that's the thing. It's just you, you never know. But I was glad when those guys said that. I mean, it made me feel better because... Definitely going to turn around is a big difference then. Well, we're not sure. 
Yeah, but, but you know, and it could have, uh, you know, very easily went the other way as well. Yeah. You know, all of a sudden something, something, uh, the pressure comes down or the pressure comes up and it just affects it so much more. You, you just don't know. It's a crapshoot. It's really a crapshoot. And now there were, I think there were two, two or three brewing out there, um, but it doesn't look like we're going to be, uh, it, I don't think it's going to affect us at all. No, I, I heard a guy from the Weather Channel, I think it was today on the Hannity show, radio show, and he said that uh, his prediction was is we're not going to have any more until September 20th to August 10th, and we're going to get hammered again with a bunch of storms. You know, um, He didn't say they were going to hit Florida, but a bunch of storms are going to be coming. I don't know where he got that, but that's his prediction, and he's pretty good at it, so. We'll find out, you know, I remember when we prepared our house for the storm, put up the panels, and I removed all the furniture from the backyard. And my garage is loaded to the gills with everything. And then you had some people that, well, I'm not going to, now I'm going to leave everything the way it is, you know. And then at the last minute, they didn't. And I always said, you know, I'd rather be the idiot that prepared for it and prepared my house than have to, didn't have to, ended up that we didn't have to do uh, it. I, I, I always said, I hope I have to take this stuff down for nothing. Right. Yeah, it's better than being the idiot that didn't prepare and lost everything. Well, you know, uh, one thing I do is every year when hurricane season starts, every uh, couple of paychecks I go and take a couple of five-gallon cans of gas, I go to the gas station, fill them up, bring them back, put them in my shed to run my generator. Because I remember we went through that before, we were three days without power. So by the time hurricane season even gets really going, I've already got 45 or 50 gallons of gas in my shed with a good generator. Um, so then I'm, I'm kind of set as far as that goes. And the wife and I try to get some stuff. But I think it seems like this time, and tell me if you agree, it seems like all the stores, Publix and Winn-Dixie, they had it together more. Even though their shelves got emptied real fast, they stocked it back up right away. It seemed like they had planned that there was more stuff coming. And I was understood that the governor had something to do with that, DeSantis. Yeah, everybody was pretty impressed with the way he handled this uh, I think situation. So too. Yeah, Publix, you know, the Publix by my house was empty. My wife had gone, it was empty. She couldn't get bread and some other stuff. But it, it, I guess it depends on where you lived. You know, some places are better than others. Some places are more uh, touristy. So that, you know, if you were in a tourist area, you probably had better luck in, in Publix than if you're in a residential area. That's true. So, you know, it's, it's not easy leaving your loved ones behind in these situations, but it comes with the territory. Um, it's what we do in times of crisis. Sometimes it means leaving our families to care for yours. It's not easy, easy but imagine if we didn't, Gary. True. You know, imagine if we didn't, if, uh, what would happen, the, the chaos. Um, people would literally be left to fend for themselves. Well, you know, if you remember back uh, when we were working together at the airport, when those hurricanes came through, it was Ivan, or Charlie, Francis, whatever it was, um, we had a lieutenant there whose family was at home. He was at work with us, and he lost the roof on his house, if you recall that. I don't... Lieutenant O'Brien? I remember Lieutenant O'Brien. He lost the roof on his house in Buffalo. That was a shame. Certainly did, and they had to... They had to go to live in a hotel, and it was just a real nightmare for him. But, you know, he wasn't there to comfort his family, and they were there with this roof coming off. And can you imagine how scared him and the girls were? No. I mean, his wife and the girls, rather. You know, it's funny. I remember the, the first hurricane that we went through. Um, at one point, we were all huddled up in my bedroom, my, my wife, I, and my three kids. And you hear these sounds. You, don't know, you know, people say it sounds like a train coming through. And 
we had lost power and it, it was dark and we were just laying there listening and at one point it sounded like my roof was coming off it, it sounded like <laughs> and I, I envisioned my tiles yeah, being yeah. peeled off the roof um, you know thankfully when, when it, it passed and we had gone outside th there was really no damage the only damage I had I think I lost a tree so I, I was very lucky oh me too and, and you know through all those hurricanes I have a screen patio not a screen pool, but just a patio, big long one. I didn't lose one screen, believe it or not. I mean, I couldn't believe it, but, but um, no, I didn't. I didn't lose one screen, and and now I have a brand new roof on my house. So, I was, <laughs> I was praying that that would hold if Dorian came through, you know. Absolutely. But, but I don't think it would have. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, we're, we're going to talk about you know how. how times change to go just to go into another t a topic you know we talked about hurricanes and some of the history of hurricanes i just want to touch on the history of, of policing of policing the, the evolution of policing um you know and the evolution is a progress a process of continuous change from a lower simpler or worse to a higher more complex or better state and that's what's happened in, in policing you know if you go all the way back when i mean i guess in the 1600s there was some type of law enforcement but in uh the first professional policing was uh, originated in 1829 by Sir Robert Peel um, in England. And those were the officers that were known as Bobbies or, or Peelers, they, they were called. <laughs> and that was in London in uh, 1829. And, you know, if you, you look at how, how far we've come back then, there was no such thing as radios. And if you needed to summons help, you had to uh, they used what was called a ratchet. I got a message from Bill Brownlee. <laughs> okay. There's a, a ratchet or whistle to summons assistance. You know, uh, is that what they had when you first started policing? Did you use a ratchet <laughs> or a tin can with strings? Well, no, I was on horseback, so it was uh, <laughs> smoke signals at the time. Yeah. You know, um, and e even then things started to evolve. Back in the 1800s, then what they did was they instituted a red light system. And what they would do is they would put these red lights at these huge intersections. And when the light was lit, the officer on the beat would know that he would have to contact the station house to get his next assignment. Yeah. So, you know, it was just no communication. You know, if you were a block away, you would have to hope, you know, hope that the guy could hear your ratchet if you needed help. You know, I remember when I was a rookie, one of the training officers said, yeah, when I started, we didn't have radios. If we needed help, we used to bang our nightsticks on the floor three times yeah. to, to, to summon help. Um, well, you know, it's uh, it's funny. Th it's, this is kind of true because uh, I'm going to date myself here. But when I first started in the sheriff's office, we didn't have portable radios. Radios were in the car. Right. So when you went out at a domestic and you went in there, you were on your own. Absolutely. And if you were in trouble, whether the radio was a mile away or an inch away, if you couldn't reach it, you still couldn't get help. Uh, and then I remember the highway patrol, and I can't remember the circumstances, but the highway patrol had the same systems, and they didn't have portable radios either, and uh, those guys really weren't paid well then, and and they were all, you know, people were afraid to say anything because administration had come down on you, but you know what happened? A state trooper ended up getting hurt, and he couldn't get to his car for help. I think he got, I think he was beaten up or something by a bunch of guys, right. but, the, but boy, the highway patrol wives got together after that. And they raised holy hell, and uh, they got those uh, troopers got got uh, portable radios after that, so they could call for help. 
And of course, when we got our first portable radio here at the sheriff's office, it was like a brick. Right. It was great for a fight because you could grab it if you didn't have anything else and you had, had to survive, you know. Absolutely. <laughs> hey, you, you know, when, when you're in battle with somebody, if, if, you know, my thinking is if you're fighting with a police officer, there are no rules. For the police officer. Yeah, yeah. We, we don't well, fight. Well, for us, yeah. but not for them. We don't fight fair. We don't have to fight fair. We have to fight to win, to survive, to but go home. Exactly. You know, that, that's our job. You know, um, in 1870, the Chicago Police Department started to impl uh, implement call boxes, like a, a call booth, not a box. The boxes were, uh, were later on, uh, but it was a booth, and it was set up with a type of telegraph system, and there was a clock inside that had 11 settings on it from 1 to 11, and what you would do is each one was designated for a certain call. It could be for robbery or murder or thievery, whatever they called it back then. Really? And what the officer would do is he would go into the, the booth, adjust the dial to that particular spot, pull the handle. It would go back to the station where they would read the telegraph, and then they would know what was going on. If they had to send more people to that, to that area, they would do it. And that was the communication. It was one-way communication at that point. Then in 1880, you know, that, that's really unbelievable. But, but that's, uh, that's these. But are I the mean, advances. it's pretty ingenious for the time. When you think about it, absolutely. Then in 1880, they added telephones to the booths. So in that point, now there was two-way communication, but it was strictly in the booth in 1880. <laughs> and uh, patrol back then was either a foot post or horseback. Yeah. You know, it was there were no cars back then. You know, there were no cars for patrol. Then the uh, first police car was actually a wagon that w ran on electricity. Okay, it ran on electricity that they were able to get from the street somehow, and that was in uh, Akron, Ohio, in 1899. It was able to reach a top speed of 16 miles per hour. You know, back Wait, then. That, that's yeah. really moving, huh? Yeah, and it, it ran for about uh, 30 miles before you had to recharge it. So, can you imagine <laughs> being in a pursuit? <laughs> with some have like, your battery run down yeah i guess there were no everettes back then i know, guess or, not or duracells <laughs> you know so yeah that was in 1899 and then as we advanced um motorcycles came into play in 1908 the first police motorcycle was sold in detroit michigan and i, I give you three guesses what type of motorcycle it was who the manufacturer was uh, let me guess uh started with an h probably harley davidson absolutely bing 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 and then uh, 1911. And I was still riding them in 1983, Harley-Davidson. No, they're still here. They're, that's a staple. They still are, yeah. You know, I, I know some departments have uh, actually experimented with Hondas, but I think the staple is the Harley-Davidson. It is now. Yeah, you know, 1911 was the first, actually, motorcycle patrol that was started in Berkeley, California. So it's the first time, instead of having a motorcycle here, they actually had a motorcycle unit. Um, so, advances. I guess. Yeah, and then, uh, then with the advent of cars, in 1928, the police department, Detroit Police Department, utilized the first on-air voice communication, um, where they could, it was a one-way radio where they could speak to the police officers, but they couldn't speak back. And it helped them with making arrests, but uh, there was no other contact. If the officer had to get in contact, he had to go to a phone booth yeah. and, and call them. So it was just like, but you know what? They didn't know any better. No, no. And they, they thought when that phone booth came out, boy, that's the big deal, huh? Absolutely. You know, it's, it's funny. You go back to the call boxes. I don't know if you have seen the call boxes, but. I've seen them before. 
when I worked in Coney Island on the boardwalk, there were the old call boxes. We're so still there. It was still there, and you know the story was that each call box usually had a pint of liquor in it. Yeah. To keep the guy warm in the in the, in in the, the winter, winter time. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, you know what they say: cops don't go hungry; they don't get wet or cold or cold. That's it. Um. Then in uh, 1933, the first two-way radio was, was put into work with the Bayonne, New Jersey Police Department, and that uh, was only in nine of their police cars. So nine police cars had two, two-way communication. The foot people didn't have any radios. So, you know, it was limited, but still it, w- it was a great advance. Yeah, if you think about course. it, you know, now with cell phones, everybody's got a cell phone. Or, you know, with us it was beepers and cell phones. Um, but the beat cops, you know, still had to use the call boxes, the telephones, and the boots. And also when the officers, like you said, when the officers left their cars, that's where the communication stayed. So there's no way of getting help. Um, well, you know, when, when we were narcs, uh, and we didn't have cell phones yet, I, when once we got cell phones, we were like, how do we ever do any drug deals? Because all they ever do was we ran from phone booth to phone booth, putting in money, calling the drug dealer. Hey, meet me here, meet me there. No, I'm not going to meet you there. Okay, I'll call you back. And then you run to another phone booth and call them. And, and that was all night a ferry, you know, when they had with they no did, cell phones. When they had, they did uh, drug deals back then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, they realized there was definitely a need to get radios in the hands of all police officers. And it was back in uh, 1960, they started, uh, they fashioned a radio that was similar to the radio backpacks that they had in World War II. And that's what they equipped the officers with. Back then, they all weighed about five pounds. So it was like a brick. It was having a, a brick, hitting somebody with a brick if you had it. And, uh, you know, now you look at the radio now, the advances, now they're getting smaller and smaller. Yeah. <laughs> you having a good time over there on the phone? Who are you talking to? Actually, nobody. I'm not that. It's, I was thinking of something else. I, I remember us. <laughs> A story <laughs> with 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 the big brick radios that we had, the big ones, and and uh, one of the guys for some reason was fighting a bad guy in the double in between the double doors at Denny's. You know they have the doors going in the right. double doors, and he was on the ground fighting this guy, <laughs> and he was losing. <laughs> He, he got pulled his radio off his back belt and was smacking him in the head with it. And I opened the door. I said, you okay? He goes, yeah, I'm about done. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Take him away. Yeah, you know, there was an incident years ago back in New York with the, with the old radios. There was a, uh, somebody who was actually killed by a police radio. There was somebody that was a suspect. I don't remember what the crime was for, but he was fleeing on a bicycle. And the police officer... Out of desperation, trying to get this guy, took his radio and threw, threw it, it at him. Hit him, hit him in the back of the head, and the guy wound up dying. Oh man! Yeah, I don't know what the outcome with that, with the repercussions were with the police officer. I, I'm sure there was a major lawsuit. And uh, when was this? This was probably back. Oh, I don't know if it was in the '80s, in oh, the yeah. '80s or in oh, the yeah. '90s, back in New York City. Whew. Yeah, threw a Motorola radio, hit him in the back of the head. I bet the cop like, didn't go to prison though. I don't remember, I, you know, to be honest with you, I, I, I don't know what happened. You know, um, it's crazy. You know, so th- those are the advantage, advances with communication. And, you know, now, then you talk about firearms. You know, back then the police officers carried clubs, you know, m- most of them. In England, a lot of police officers still don't carry firearms. Um, but they started carrying openly, it was part of their uniforms, at the start of the 20th century, but prior to that, a lot of them used to carry them inside their jackets. But I guess at the start of the 20th century, you used to see them on the uniforms themselves. 
and the uh, New York NYPD had, uh, I think they had them inside their the inside the pocket or well there I was a pocket holster in there or something. Well, it wasn't a pocket holster. Um, you know, I had what was called a reefer coat, which was a he very heavy winter coat, and that it had a had hole a in the slit, pocket right? so you could access your gun. There you go. That's yeah, right. Yeah, so you could get to your gun if your hand was in your pocket. You know, you talk about having a gun in your pocket. When I was in plain clothes, I used to keep a gun in my pocket. You know, just in case, and I'd keep it. You know, if I was talking to a, somebody, a bad guy, a suspect, I'd have my hand in my pocket. He couldn't see my gun, but I was ready in case I needed it. Yeah, you know, it's always ready. You know, it's funny. The New York City Police Department was the uh, first agency credited in having standardization with their weapons. You know, with the type of weapons that everybody had, and, and rules and regulations as far as qualifications and all that. Um, and that was the revolver. They were all carrying revolvers back then. It was. Uh, 1885, uh, Theodore Roosevelt was the police commissioner, believe it or not. And he really? Ordered, yeah, he had ordered 4,500 Colt, 32 caliber, six-round double-action revolvers with four-inch barrels. And that, that was the standard weapon at the time. Um, he instructed officers marksman quali qualifications. He wanted everybody to be qualified and be trained in it, which, which we are today. And that, that still goes on with the uh, qualifications and the marksmanship and all that. And then uh, eventually semi-automatic pistols were introduced. And uh, in 1967, it was they were adopted by the Illinois State Police. So the first time that a semi-automatic weapon was used in a very large department. But it would not be the last. No. That's uh, un unbelievable. I think uh, the revolver, I, I, I carried revolvers when I first came on, and I had a six-inch Colt Python that was nickeled and... I loved that. Was anyway. that a 357? 357. Yeah. But I carried, well, in the beginning we carried 357s, but then we went to 38 plus P. But I loved that gun, but then they made me change because they went to Beretta. The 92F? Uh, I mean, yeah, and I had to get one of those. And uh, <clears throat> I didn't want to give up that revolver, but once I did, it was okay. It was nice. You know, and then, you know, from that, then they started looking for less lethal types of weapons. In 1960, they went to mace. In 1973, they went to pepper spray. Yeah, don't you hate it when you spray a guy with mace and he laughs at you? Well, yeah. <laughs> uh, but I'll, I'll tell you what's even worse. When, when I came to this agency, I had to do my comparative compliance class, and I remember one day the instructor telling us, okay, tomorrow you guys are going to get maced. And I was like, what do you mean we're going to get maced? He says, well, if you don't get maced, you can't get certified. Now, I misunderstood him. I thought that meant if I didn't get maced, I couldn't be certified to be a police officer. So I was like, okay. And I said, you know, I, I don't get it. I carried mace my, my whole career, 17 years in New York. I, right. I had mace, and that was it. So he said, yeah, well, tomorrow you guys are getting mace. What I suggest is you go to the uh, drugstore in the morning, get some Johnson Johnson's No More Tears baby shampoo because it helps deactivate it. After you get maced, you want to get it in your eyes and pretty much wash your eyeballs. So the next morning... I get, and the only reason why I went along with this is because I thought I wouldn't be certified to be a police officer. I, I later found out it would, I wouldn't have been certified to carry the mace or, or the pepper spray. If I knew that, I, I wouldn't have carried it. So when I went and I got mace, I remember uh, sprayed it across my forehead, and I remember the instructor saying, oh, it didn't get you too, too bad, and then it started running down. and oh, it, It's brutal. It's like, if nobody's ever been maced, you definitely don't want it to happen to you. No. I mean, I had snot running out of my nose, and I... <laughs> Couldn't see, and then they want you to fight. They want you to know that you can fight through it in case you accidentally get maced by your partner or it comes back in your face. And we went through this whole thing, fighting, kicking, hitting with the nightstick, and then somebody grabbed you and they threw you into the shower. 
and there must have been about eight of us. It was me, another guy from New York, and some other guys from different states. And I remember as I'm washing the stuff in my face, I'm rubbing the shampoo and trying to lessen the effects. I hear one of the instructors say, how come the only guys that aren't here crying, everybody was pissing and mourning, how come the only guys that aren't here crying are the guys from New York? And I, I'm listening to this, and of course this guy from New York was trying to decide if he had to go to the hospital. I, I couldn't breathe. I was, you know, I couldn't cry if I wanted to. You know, it was just like, I was like, and it, it was horrible. And after that I had to go get my radio. So I went, went to get my radio and there was a woman in the radio room and she looked at me and she said, oh my, my God. God. What happened? No, she knew. She said, oh my God, you got maced. And she took me by the hand and took me into the back office where there was a sink, and she was helping wash my eyes. And I remember driving home that day um, like this, because one eyeball was rolled up into the back of my head. I, I Really, it was rolled up. And I remember driving like driving this. I was like, I was like, oh. And I get home, and my daughter looked. I mean, they looked at me like, oh, my God. And then you go in the shower, and unfortunately, every time you... It starts well, all over. You, you reactivate it, and it was brutal. I remember telling my, my sons, I said, listen, I'm telling you right now, if the, do not argue with the police. If they ever tell, tell you to do something, you better listen. Well, I told them that anyhow. I said, but you do not want to get maced. No, um, no, not at all. Yeah. So that was the mace and all that. And it's funny, when I started... Uh, I wouldn't carry mace. I never carried mace. But the bad thing was, whenever like your partner or somebody else was fighting with somebody and they pulled out the mace and sprayed the other guy, you always got it on you. <coughs> and then you had to transport the guy I, you <coughs> in know, your car. Look, I know in New York City there were quite a few toilet I hated to that toilet seats that were maced in the in, yeah, the, in the in the station house. Yeah, yeah. The guys thought it was funny. So yeah, we'll, we'll mace the toilet seat. You sit down to do oh, your business. Your <laughs> yeah, um, I, it is what it is, you know. And then we talk about when I started um, with the department. I remember the older cops before I was a police officer used to have the uh, I don't know what you would call it, like the strips in the back, almost like a bandolero on the back of the the gun belt with the bullets, yeah. and they would reload from that. When I start, started, we had the drop-down pouches. So you would drop down the pouch, all six rounds would go into your gun, and then you would reload from that. Um, and then uh, there were strips. They also had... You mean the pouch? Yeah, the pouch. Had the strip in there? No, the pouch uh, no, it was or, different. Or loose bullets. Loose bullets. Way, yeah. pouch that You would line them up, they would be stacked, and you'd drop all six into your hand, you'd reload them. Then they also came out with these speed strips that the bullets would be in. Now, in, uh, un unfortunately, it always takes a tragedy for some departments to make advances. In 1986, there was a police officer, Scott Goodell, that was killed. He was involved in a shootout. As he was reloading his, his revolver, suspect came back and shot and killed him. This was in Queens. And uh, from there, because of that, we went to speed loaders. Yeah. Okay, it, it took the death of a police officer to get us to go to speed loaders. Um, and it's the same. And the bad thing with the speed loaders, when you're the adrenaline's going, if you drop one, you drop them all. You, you know, you're going to lose a couple of rounds. Yeah, yeah. You know, that, that's the bad thing about it. And then it was in, uh, I guess, 1993, where we started going to the semi-automatics in New York. You know, specialized units had it, emergency service cops had it, undercover narcotics guys had it, but. Patrol start, first started coming out to patrol in 1993. I didn't go to mine until 95 because I was afraid of the. You hear the stories about the jamming and the misfires and all that. And I was a yeah. revolver, a revolver guy. They said, "Look, you can take a revolver, throw it against the wall, drop it in the mud, pick it up. It's still going to shoot. You didn't have to worry about it. it." Was, you know, good old reliable. 
That's true. And uh, then we went to uh, 1999. Tasers came into came into play. Yeah, those were fun. You know, and and that's the funny thing with the tasers. I remember guys would, in order to carry it, you had to get tased. And somebody said to I me, "I did too." Did you? Oh, you got tased? Yes. <laughs> You couldn't justify to me why I had to get tased. You said, well, we want you to know that you can, uh, I, I don't even, I still don't know what the reasoning was. It, I think it was more to just f for laughs because. That's all we did was laughing at everybody. Yeah. Um, you know. I remember Richie B. Mm -hmm. training. He was in my class. Oh, so and you he, were there. And you know, Richie, he's yelling, come on, come on, tase me. And he's got those big muscles. Come on, literally, you know, with all these muscles, it's it worked worse. even worse, you know. Man, when they hit him, he dropped like a bag of potatoes. Yeah, he, he told me the story, and uh, I, <laughs> but he's yelling at him. Come on! Yeah, hopefully, yeah. Well, hopefully he's li yeah. Hopefully he's listening because when he tells me he's doing the same thing, he's like, "Come on, come on!" And they went from "Come on" to "Ee!" <laughs> you know, as he went down, yeah. I was just like, "You uh, just uh, could not uh, could not justify." He was like, I, "Listen, I carry a knife." I tell you, they work great though. They oh, really, yeah, they, they yeah, really. They, but you if don't you hit Gary, the guy. It makes but you, there's another gun. Just like the guy with the mace that wipes it out of his eyes and laughs at you, there's guys that pulled those tasers out and you had to fist fight them and it was oh absolutely bad news of Black Rock trying to do that. And then you get the guys where you know they shoot and because they're too far away of it, you get the too big of a spread and you get the police officer who's standing next to the suspect gets yeah. tased also. Yeah, yeah. So there was a incident when I'm not going to go into the agency or anything like that, but the tasers were first gotten. And they, they were chasing a stolen car, and the pursuit ended up where the suspect crashed into a tree, and all these police officers were there that just had all these tasers. And they were dragging this guy out of the car, and you hear all of a sudden you hear everybody yelling, stop resisting, stop resisting. <laughs> and he's screaming, I'm not resisting. And, this, and all of a sudden you hear, <laughs> they were dry stunning him. And I was like, I said, you know, I guess everybody wanted to check out a toy, and I was like, but it was, it was horrible. I've drive stunned guys before, but I've also seen great big muscle-bound, really scary guys. One guy in particular on the video where they kept telling him, don't do it, and he kept up, and they said, don't do it, don't fight us, and, and he went out, get, took his hands off the car, and pop, they hit him with that taser. He dropped out. He was crying like a baby. I, I saw a video of the guy. This guy had a weigh about close to 300 pounds. He looked like a biker. I mean, he was, he was huge. He, he was a huge man, and cops were much smaller and same thing they wound up tasing him and he went down like you know j just went right down and they cuffed him up and he was sitting in the car and he said to me let me tell you something he says I've been shot I've been stabbed I've been hit with baseball bats he says this is the most painful thing that I ever experienced and he apologized and it's only what five seconds or ten seconds yes yeah, it's, it's a five second ride well, you know what I had a kid tell me one time in the back seat of my patrol car he said bro don't tase me. I'll take that ass whooping any day. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then we move into from the uh, tasers in 1999, the, the advances. Then we eventually, 1999, they came, I'm sorry, 2012, body cameras were introduced in, in California. And, you know, now just about all the agencies are carrying them. And I remember when. My first reaction to them was my, my worry is that it might cause a police officer to, to hesitate in doing what needed to be done. And I'm not talking about abuses or anything like no, that. I understand. Like you, you worry about that camera. Um, but it's definitely been a lot more positive than negative. 
Okay. They've gotten out to where they don't even realize it's Onyx. No, they don't. But that what it does know. is it's it's cut down on false complaints. You know, people sure. oh, make yeah. people make these complaints, and all of a sudden, and the complaints are en entertained, and then you'll get an internal affairs unit that review reviews blah, 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 reviews the video. Yeah. And it's like, hey, this didn't happen. Well, there's been, you know, people have said that. Oh, the cop said this. He said that to me. He and it turns out it was just a bald-faced lie. Oh, absolutely. Just to try to get out of a ticket or something. It was just ridiculous. Yeah, and the same thing with these shootings. And then what happens now? The cop can sue them. Uh, we should be able to. Well, we can. Nobody ever does, hardly. Right. You know, same thing with these shootings. A lot of times, you know, people, there's an outcry. The police shot He was unarmed, unarmed man. And all of a sudden, you look at the video, and you see the gun. And you see the gun in the hand. So it... it it's definitely a positive yeah, thing. Yeah, for sure. And a lot of times, too, when people know they're being recorded, they have a different demeanor altogether. Oh, a lot of a lot of uh, cops tell them you're on, you're being recorded right now. So. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm trying to think what uh, what's next, as far as technical technological advances. Where, where do we go from here? Well, you know, uh, it's, I, I regress a lot, but back before. When my radio was mounted in the car, mm -hmm. I remember going to a domestic violence assault before Lauderdale. And I go in the house. It's kind of comical. I go in the house. I get the husband on this side of me by the door. I get the wife on this side. They're screaming, yelling back and forth. All these little kids are there. And so I tell the little kids, get, in, get back in your bedroom. They run down the hall and go in the bedroom. And then the wife runs in the kitchen. And you can hear her going through the knife drawer. And you're like, oh, my God, here she comes right. with a butcher knife. And so she comes out of the kitchen. I still don't have a radio. I got my gun on her. I'm holding the husband back with my left hand, and I got the gun on her. And the little kids keep running down the hall, yelling, Mommy, Daddy, Mommy. I said, get back in the bedroom. They run back in the bedroom, and I'm like this. And I, <laughs> I told the lady, don't make me shoot you. Come on, don't make me shoot you. I look out the window. Here goes a patrol car by. And he just kept going. But I couldn't get to the radio and right. I call for help, you know. It worked out. She finally got frustrated, threw the knife down and ran in the bedroom. Thank God. You know, I remember. The husband left and that was it. I didn't even arrest anybody. Remember that was in the old days. When I was a rookie, I was going through training, you know, back in New York, one of the training offices. This guy, Louis Miller, God rest his soul. The guy, it was amazing. I remember one day he picked up the radio. He said, I'm not going to imitate his voice. He said, this is a radio. It can save your life. Yeah, and he's right. Yeah. You know, it's... This is one of the most, this, one of the, the radio is one of the most important pieces of equipment that we, we carry. Well, it, it took me a while to get used to having a portable radio because I would still get in the middle of a fight and then go, oh my God, I got a radio right here. I can just call for help. Right. And I had to happen like two or three times before I finally, duh, you have the radio. Call ahead of time. Yeah, exactly. Have, have, have them respond. Now, you know, it's funny, the radio, you'll hear guys go out. Especially we didn't have very many deputies in those days, so. You had to call ahead because it took them 30 minutes or 40 minutes to get there. Depending on, yeah, they could have been on the opposite side of the county. It's crazy. Guys, if you have a topic you'd like us to discuss, we definitely welcome your ideas. And uh, you can let us know on the Observations Facebook page or email the show direct at copservations at yahoo.com. Gary, thank you uh, for being my co-host. I look forward to next week's show and, uh, and, your, and your participation. Ha, ha, ha.
<laughs> Remember, you can join our podcast live every Thursday night at 7 p.m. Eastern on the Observations Facebook page or the Observations podcast channel on the Metaphor Creative Media YouTube page. As with the end of every episode where we honor the lives of our fallen brothers and sisters, tonight we honor Officer Kenyon Mark Yunstrom of the California Highway Patrol, whose end of watch was on this day, September 5th, back in 2012. Officer Youngstrom had stopped on the shoulder of the I-680 freeway to check on deer carcass when another officer on the same freeway radioed to him that he was pulling over a vehicle for an obstructed license plate. As the vehicle approached his position, Youngstrom signaled for the driver to pull in behind his parked patrol car. Officer Youngstrom approached the vehicle and began speaking with the driver as the other officer pulled up and parked behind them. The man suddenly pulled a handgun and shot through the window, striking Officer Youngstrom in the head and knocking him to the travel lane of the highway. The other officer immediately returned fire, killing the suspect. Officer Youngstrom was rushed to the hospital where he remained on life support until succumbing to his wounds on the following day. He was a U.S. Army veteran and had served with the California Highway Patrol for seven years. He was survived by his wife, four children, his mother, and five siblings. As always, I want to thank you for tuning in. We'll see you next Thursday at 7 p.m. Eastern Time. Until then, stay safe and God bless.